The word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 20. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin! For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven there are angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray... Does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Since we're spending a bit of today looking backwards at Good Shepherd, I thought I'd start out with a few lyrics from a song that some might consider a golden oldie, which is a little bit weird because it came out the same year that I graduated from high school, which wasn't all that... Never mind. In 1985, Whitney Houston released her first studio album, which included several of the top singles of her short but brilliant career. One of them 
Greatest Love of All, which played all summer long, began like this. I believe that children are our future. Teach them well and let them lead the way. Show them all the beauty they possess inside. Give them a sense of pride to make it easier. Let the children's laughter remind us how we used to be. Now, to her credit, the song is partly an ode to what was lost. You can't be a child forever, so you have to grow up. What does that mean? Well, in the verse, she goes on to say, Everybody's searching for a hero, and so I learned to depend on me. And then after the pre-chorus, the famous chorus concludes by saying, The greatest love of all is easy to achieve. Learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. Now, this was the 80s, only a few years ago, like 40, when our culture's biggest pop virtue is still self-esteem rather than tolerance. The most important thing you could do was feel good about yourself, went the rationale, because people who feel good about themselves are going to feel good about being good to others. Now, this rationale failed to include the idea of original sin, that plenty of people feel good about themselves by vanity and pride, feeling superior to others, or by greed, taking from others, or even by coercion, proving themselves stronger than others. So the idea of self-love would only really be a good thing for people who had no sin, and people without sin wouldn't have a need for self-love anyway. At any rate, one of the expressions of this was the 70s holdover of fostering your inner child. The inner child is a counseling term that sort of sums up the childhood experiences that help form you into the adult that you have become, and there is validity to this, but there's also a lot of mischief. See, grown-up people would do all sorts of irresponsible things in terms of money or employment or relationships or education and then justify it all by saying they were only following their inner child and how could that be wrong? And this, in turn, continued an unhealthy glorification of childhood. In good situations, it is good to be a kid, Kids have no great worries because parents are in charge of the food, the clothing, the house and home, and all the other needs for daily bread. They get to play and imagine and discover the world, finding fascination in unloading kitchen cupboards under the floor. And their greatest horror in life is that they're supposed to take an afternoon nap. And an aversion to the afternoon nap tells me that there is something wrong with little children. Not everyone agrees, however, and so we have this weird and everyone knows unsustainable argument that children are innocent and smarter than we are, and so we should honor their demands, whatever they might be. If your child is trying to steal the packet of M&Ms out of the store, you should buy it for them rather than teach them that stealing is wrong because public discipline could get you a visit from Child Protective Services. Outrageously, all sorts of folks these days are arguing that parents don't have the right to guide their children's sexuality because their children should follow their own path of being guided by other people, school policies, media influencers, and the like. 
Most outrageously, authorities who ought to know better argue that children are so mature and emotionally steady that they should be able to offer irreversible gender reassignment surgery. After all, if we can teach to children that the greatest love of all is learning to love yourself, how can any other decisions be wrong? All of this is horrific, and we are seeing the fruits of some really bad ideas. Grown-ups who abandon responsibility and give children free reign create unhappy children who don't know how to be responsible. As each generation of these children become the adults, the world is not getting better. That's why I had to laugh recently when a commentator said to remember that the art of parenting is mostly telling your children no because they have so many bad ideas. With original sin, bad ideas and bad behaviors come naturally. Good ideas and good behaviors, they have to be taught and reinforced. Where am I going with all this? That's right. In our gospel reading, the disciples are discussing the question of who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's a little mystifying that this would even be a question, To bring you up to speed, we spent two of the last three Sundays in Matthew 16, where Jesus revealed himself to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, who has come to save sinners by his death and resurrection. Since then, Jesus has been transfigured before three of them, which isn't the sort of thing that happens every day, and he's cast a demon out of a terribly tormented boy, which isn't the sort of thing that everyone can do. That pretty much brings us up to Matthew 18, where the disciples come to the recently transfigured Jesus, the Son of the living God, who casts out demons and ask him, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It would be pretty easy, and a much shorter gospel reading, if Jesus answered their questions simply with a Yahweh-like, I am. But instead, he puts a child in the midst of them and says, You're not. Far from being a candidate for the greatest by being the twelve, Jesus says to them, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Then he gives his definition and says, Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Note that Jesus focuses on the child's humility. You do not become the greatest in the kingdom of heaven by being childlike, by avoiding responsibility, playing with toys, pursuing the pleasure of the day, doing your own thing, or even by taking naps. You do not become the greatest in the kingdom of heaven by your hard work of humbling yourself either, because sooner or later you're going to get proud of how humble you are. The child in the midst of the disciples is humble because he knows he's a kid He knows he needs his parents to take care of him, and he's submitting to those truths. The great humility of the kingdom of heaven is to know that you're a child of God, you know that you're dependent upon your Father in heaven for everything, and you're quite happy to submit to that really good news because our Father who art in heaven loves to give good gifts. That's why Jesus warns about leading little ones into sin. 
It would be criminal to tell a child to leave his home and go play in the desert by himself. And so it is destructive to the soul to tell children that, rather than keep receiving God's gifts of grace and life, they should strike out on their own, pursue whatever else attracts them, and do what they want, because their sinful nature is going to attract them to things that destroy the soul. And if anyone wants to argue that children are born innocent, I'll ask you first to tell me why nobody has to train a child to be impatient or selfish or angry. And if you say they just don't know any better, you've proved my point. The greatest humility in the kingdom of heaven so trusts God's will and word that you follow his commands without ever getting rankled about it because you're confident that God is right. If your hand was causing you to sin, you'd rather cut it off and throw it away. Same with the foot, same with the eye. By the way, don't start lopping off limbs. Even if you did, it would be out of fear of wrath, not trust in God. And in fact, your hands and feet and eyes do not cause you to sin. They're only working at the behest of your heart and your brain. And you can't really lop off your heart and your brain and stay alive, even if it appears that some do. The greatest humility of the kingdom of heaven so trusts God's will that you're willing to sacrifice your plans in service to others. I've decided I would be a lousy shepherd kicking back and watching my hundred sheep graze only to find that it's 99 because one has wandered. If I went after it, it would only be out of a sense of obligation, not humility. And if I found it, I would certainly not be rejoicing over it more than the 99 that never went astray. But that's what the greatest humility does. It will not let one little one perish. Similarly, the greatest humility of the kingdom of heaven so trusts God's will that since he wants no one to perish, you're going to deal evangelically with those who sin against you. You're going to set your anger, your hurt, and your skepticism aside. You're going to tell him his fault between him and you alone. If you don't gain him back, you're going to persist. You're not going to do this because Jesus says you have to in Matthew 18. You're going to do this because his soul matters to you that much. So there you go. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the one who trusts in God the Father who relies on his strength and help, who sacrifices his own good for the will of others, and who would rather suffer loss of life and limb than sin against him even once. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven is far from the one who has learned to love himself above all things. And let's be honest, that's not you. But it does sound an awful lot like Jesus. It sounds like the eternal Son of God who, though he has no reason to be humble, he has humbled himself and become obedient unto death, even death on the cross. It sounds like the only begotten Son who prays to his Father, your will be done, and perfectly trusts in that will, even when it means that he'll be crucified the following day, 
And it sounds like the son who suffers the wrath for sin and then trustingly prays to his father still, into your hands I commit my spirit. Oh, this sounds like the son who not only would rather suffer loss of life and limb than sin, but would allow his limbs, his hands, and his feet to be nailed to a cross and his eyes blinded by death so that you, one of those little ones, might not perish. It sounds like the son who, having conquered sin, death, and devil, still spends his time gathering lost sheep back together and feeding them with his means of grace, promising that wherever two or three are gathered in his name, he is there in the midst of them. You will never be that great, and you will never be that humble. It's good to admit that, which is why we have the confession of sins. Then, in the absolution, you hear that Jesus forgives you and wraps you up in his own righteousness, in his own life, and in his own humility. His blood covers your sins, your doubts, your pride, your cynicism. And with all that taken away, all that's left is the virtue of Christ. And all of that is given you already in your baptism. There, already by water and the word, you have forgiveness and life and salvation. Washed by his blood and clothed in his righteousness, the Lord sets you in the midst of his people and says, To this child belongs the kingdom of heaven. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.